Humans are 98% emotional and only 2% rational. And yet, everything we do is based on rationality, and so we never learn. There's no system in place to teach us how to master our emotions. Welcome to the Raising Confident Teens podcast, where we share life and leadership skills with teens and their parents. I'm Hudson. And I'm Rachel. And today we are going to be chatting with Doug Knoll. Yes, Hudson, I'm excited about this episode. I've been reading on the work that Doug has done, and it is fascinating. But first, let me tell you a little bit about him. Doug was born partially deaf, nearly blind, crippled, and super smart. All buzz kills for the girls in his early years. He graduated from Dartmouth College, earned his law degree and was a ferocious civil trial lawyer for 22 years. Then he went back to school to become a peacemaker. Since he left his lucrative law practice in 2000, Doug has devoted his life to understanding human conflict. His groundbreaking work in de-escalating anger and potentially violent confrontations has transformed the lives of thousands. He's one of the co-founders of the Prison of Peace Project, which has had amazing results in the lives of many of society's most violent criminals. He's been the California Lawyer Attorney of the Year, Lawyer of the Year by U.S. News and World Report, author of four books, and the list goes on and on. I am exhausted just reading about all your hobbies and accomplishments. Welcome to the podcast, Mr. Doug. <laughs> Thank you. Great to be here um, and happy to share my knowledge with all of you in the audience listening to this because I think this could be really useful for teenagers. Yeah. I'm really interested in what you teach because if we can help teens grasp this concept now, they're going to become better leaders. They're going to have happier relationships. They won't have to unlearn all the years of doing it incorrectly. Plus, it would be really essential for success in many careers. But hearing about your early life, when we talk about all those challenges you went through, how did you navigate through all of that? Not well. <laughs> I'll tell you that. <laughs> I... You know, I was born in mid-century, last century, 1950, and in those days, uh, there wasn't much help for people like me. My parents, I, I grew up in affluence, so that it wasn't a financial issue. It was a problem of a society that really doesn't didn't know how to deal with the kind of disabilities that I had. I wasn't so disabled that, you know, you could find services for me, but I was sufficient, uh, but I was pretty disabled. I mean, I couldn't walk until I was three years old. It wasn't until the fourth grade that some school nurse had the broad idea to test my vision and found out that I was severely nearsighted, which uh, resulted in me getting Coke, Coke bottle lens glasses in a black frame, which in those <laughs> days, of course, was super nerdy and super ugly. And like I said, <laughs> now everything, everything now. about me was a buzzkill for the girls. It was awful. <laughs> so it was a really, it was a really rough, a really rough childhood and teen years. And but as as you mentioned, I was got in the right line for brains and managed to um, get enrolled at Dartmouth College and Ivy League school and came back to California after college and went to law school and eventually became a trial lawyer. So the way I, what I just had to, you know, you just power through this stuff. It's, you know, it wasn't fun. And it, and it, and it really did do a lot of emotional damage. It took me years, decades 
to clear the emotional trauma that I suffered from all of this. And obviously it made me a better person and I learned a lot. And I'm really dedicated today to helping people be, become better people and not have to go through the suffering that I went through. Uh, not only, not only in learning how to calm people, but just really transforming your own lives. And that's what I'm doing these days. It's really, it's really satisfying. So you can go through stuff like you went through and you could either become bitter about it or you could use it to propel you to do greater work. That's right. And that wasn't, you know, it wasn't my idea of doing greater work didn't really occur until mid career, but, but I spent so many years learning all these different skill sets and I learned how to learn and all of that prepared me for, for where my life ultimately took me. So I would, I don't regret it. And as I look back on it, I'd probably do the same thing again. If I, if I were to end up in the same place where I am today, I'd probably do it all over again. Hmm. Um, even though it was extremely painful physically and emotionally. Did you have people in your life that really believed in you despite all of that? Is that what helped you no, get through? Really? I didn't. My parents loved me, of course. I had three younger brothers, but nobody was out there to support me. Uh, they right. didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to handle me. Uh, you know, super smart, disabled kid. Kind yeah. of arrogant. Got became, you know, I covered it all up with arrogance and a lot of other emotional problems. And... You know, their attitude was, in those days, you know, the up upbringing of children was sort of governed by a guy by the name of Benjamin Spock, and he was all about not coddling kids. So they made sure that they didn't coddle me. And that meant giving me no support and, and really inconsistent emotional support and really inconsistent what I call true love. So it was just hard. It was hard and painful. Yeah. Um, just, it was just tough. So you were a lawyer, right? A trial lawyer? Yeah, yeah I was a trial lawyer for, for 22 years, um, which was interesting work, but obviously it wasn't my calling. <laughs> I, I was very good at it, but uh, ultimately through a series of circumstances, um, I, changed, I changed inside, and as I changed inside, I began to realize that being a trial lawyer was not my calling, even though I was good at it. And that's when I went back to school in mid-career in my late 40s to earn my master's degree in peacemaking and conflict studies. And I, I'll just tell you, I mean, I walked away from the law practice. I gave a week's notice to my partners, left $10 million on the table and just walked away from it all. Wow. So you just, had got, you just got to the point where you said, I just can't do this anymore? Yeah. I, well, I, I, it's not that I couldn't do it anymore. It's that I realized I wasn't serving people. I spent 22 years, tried hundreds of cases, and realized that I'd only served, really served four or five people. I'd only really helped four or five people. I mean, where they came into the legal system in one condition and came out at the other end better off. Only a couple of clients. And that's despite the fact that I was an enormously, enormously successful lawyer. One, I didn't lose many cases, lost very few. Um, but People, even though I won cases, that didn't mean that people were coming out of the system better off. And I just said, I just decided I didn't want to do that. I wanted to help people. Yeah, I'm sure that took a lot of guts for you because um, you were making a significant amount of money, um, walking away from all of that. You know, it was really pretty easy. 
I, my partners made it easy for me. <laughs> well, the managing partner who was my peer, we both graduated from law school the same year, came into my office one day and said, on a Friday, he said, We're not, I'm not giving you any more paycheck. I'm not going to authorize any more paychecks until you stop this peacemaking stuff. Oh, wow. And I, of course, he had no authority to do that. Um, but he thought he, he was pretty ignorant of a lot of things. And I, by then, I had become extremely knowledgeable about conflict. And I, I, I understood what he was doing. It was a power play. So I spent the weekend thinking about it and came back to the office on Monday, that next Monday at 8 in the morning, called him into the, to the firm, firm uh, administrator's office and took out my credit cards, my cell phone, you know, all these stuff. And said, I quit. I'll be out of here on Friday. And his jaw dropped. He couldn't believe that I called his bluff. Yeah, they weren't and expecting that. <laughs> no, not expecting that. And I had, you know, for the next week, I just had all the partners coming in and pleading with me not to go. And how can you do this? And so you guys don't want to, you guys aren't giving me the space to do what I need to do. And so the, the, it doesn't work anymore. Did they feel like it was a conflict of interest? No, they just didn't like the idea of peacemaking because, oh, you know, of trial lawyers. And, and you know, we're That's you're raised you in, in a very aggressive, very adversarial warlike mentality and I, by then I was a secondary black belt and a Tai Chi master so I had been trained in the martial arts and I just wasn't buying I wasn't buying that stuff anymore and I said I think we can make a lot of money being peacemakers and problem solvers as well as being trial lawyers and they said nope and I said okay bye it's kind of an atmosphere of if I win you lose absolutely in, in and, and, and in that environment you're fighting with your partners over money you're fighting with your clients over your bill. And then you're, of course, you're fighting with opposing counsel and opposing parties. And you're fighting with the court. It's, there's, there, it's a, you fight everywhere. It's, it's just a constant battle, multiple battles all the time. And I was, I was just tired of it. People don't realize how hard, how hard it is to be a trial lawyer. I mean, it is when you, when for every hour you're in the courtroom, you've got about eight hours of preparation if you do it right. And, and once you're in trial, they're, they're 16 hour days. So if you've got a month long trial, it's exhausting. Yeah. So how did you come upon this peacemaking uh, aspect? Did you just accidentally or? Yeah, the universe, you know, the universe provides, right? So I was, I had got, I was in a trial and what struck what struck me all of a sudden in this trial the thought came in what the heck am i doing in here and so after the trial i had a whitewater trip planned with a bunch of friends and we went up to idaho and ran the main salmon for 10 days and i that's when i really started thinking about what's 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 really important to me and i decided at the end of that trip that being a trial lawyer was not important to me but i didn't know what i was going to do so that the next Monday after the trip, I was driving down out of the mountains into town and uh, I heard what turned out to be the, the one and only public service announcement on our local public radio station for a new master's degree in peacemaking and conflict studies being offered at Fresno Pacific University, which happens to be the West Coast Mennonite College University. And it caught my interest. I mean, I'm not a Mennonite, uh, but I got interest that it, it, it caught me. And so I went through the process and ultimately I enrolled. And for three years, I was a full-time graduate student in my late forties, a full-time trial lawyer and a three quarters time law professor teaching at our local law school. 
So it was a pretty crazy time, but it was a huge, it was like an awakening uh, where I, the, my mentors were teaching me stuff that I'd never thought about before, never considered. And I saw for the first time the limitations of the law in helping people and got a deep, deep um, education in restorative justice and in human conflict. It's when I began my studies in neuroscience and it was just absolutely unbelievable uh, what I, how I learned. Everything happens for a reason. And like you learned as a trial lawyer to be great at research and learning things, all that study you did to prepare for cases. That's right. I mean, well, and that's, that's exactly right. And that was probably the most interesting part of being a trial lawyer is, is in the work that I did. I was not a criminal defense lawyer or a personal injury lawyer. I represented people in business cases. And so every time, every case was a whole bunch, always new law, new legal issues, never the same. And I had to learn my clients' business. So it was always an interesting, it was always fascinating learning, learning new stuff. And that's what made it, that's what made it intellectually fun right uh, and, and challenging so yeah i had i had all of those skills i had good critical thinking skills obviously i can speak well write well uh it would but what was really interesting in my in my master's degree studies it was the first time since law school that i when i as i was reading doing the reading because it was a heavy heavy reading load in that program i was i had two dictionaries in front of me because i would be reading for example theology or I'd be reading sociology, or I'd be re reading philosophy. And because we were looking at human conflict from all of these different disciplines. Right. Uh, you know, for example, one course was the nature of violence and nonviolence in the Bible. Very interesting course. Uh, and, and so, but, but when you read, when you read in another discipline, they have their own language. And I, I could, I could, couldn't even understand what they were saying, writing about, and, you know. And I'm a pretty smart guy, so I had to. I, it was a, it was really interesting for me to. It was like the first night of law school when I read my first case, and I said, "What is this? <laughs> I don't understand a word of what I'm reading." So in that sense, it was challenging. Yeah. Well, you, I've been reading a lot on your website, and you do a really good great job of explaining the whole you know how to how to handle conflict yes. how to work through things and um i was reading on there you know we're taught growing up we're taught to focus on the words Not when words point. are only seven percent of the message that's right and that's crazy to me that that just blows my mind that we spend so much time focusing on what we're saying when that's just a tiny tiny part of everything we don't teach people all the other aspects of communication and then we wonder why everyone's having so much trouble um, with their relationships. That's right. That's right. Um, and, and, you know, you uh, thank you for the observation that I'm teaching the how. I, I, that's a direct result of my upbringing because, because no one ever taught me how to do stuff. You know, when you're a left-handed, crippled, blind kid, no one's going to spend, the tennis coach isn't going to spend time teaching you how to Get a tennis ball. Baseball coaches aren't going to teach you how to do that stuff, you know. And nobody did. I had to teach myself everything, and I swore, and I had horrible teachers, and I and coaches, and I swore to myself that that when I grew up and I started having to teach people, I would always teach the how. 
I would never say what to do. I'd show you this is how you do it, step by step by step. And why don't we teach the all the other parts of communication? Well, okay, the great question. The great question. It starts off with a fundamental flaw in our culture, in Western civilization, and that fundamental flaw goes back four thousand years, and that is it's what I call the myth of rationality. There is a, a, a myth that persists in everything in our culture that says that what makes humans different than other animals is rationality. We're rational beings. That's a lie. It's, it's just plain wrong. And it's been, it's been foisted on us by philosophers and theologians for over 4,000 years. And everything in education is all about rationality. Uh, I teach a course at Pepperdine University called Decision Making Under Stress and Conflict and Uncertainty. And the first question I ask my students is define rationality. And they learn very quickly that there is no definition of rationality. Um, and so this is just a big myth. And, and it, 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 arose, it arose out of observations that when people are highly emotional, they don't act well. <laughs> can have bad behaviors. So we set up this aspiration of rationality where the cold Mr. Spock idea of being able to reason your way through problems and not get emotional about it because that's that, that leads to better outcomes than when we're emotional. But that's just not true. So neuroscience, as it developed from the mid-1990s until today, gives us a completely different picture of human nature. Humans are 98% emotional and only 2% rational. And yet, everything we do is based on rationality, and so we never learn. There's no system in place to teach us how to master our emotions. And in families, be interested in hearing about your family, most families are emotionally dysfunctional in the sense that they uh, children are emotionally invalidated. Hudson, you there? Yeah. <laughs> okay, Hudson, you're 14 years old. Let me ask you a question, bud. When you were two years old, two or three years old, and you were out running around having a good time, and you fall over and skinned your knee, and you started to cry, what were you told? I don't remember. <laughs> you don't remember? How about something like, hey, stop crying. Be a big boy. Big boys don't cry. Don't be a sissy. Don't be a girly girl. Get up and be tough. Remember, anybody ever say anything like that to you? You don't remember. He, yeah, everywhere. He, he's a tough guy himself. It's like, I remember, <laughs> I think one but time But how did he, he get that way? Probably unconsciously from observing how people... Because right. I know yeah. that we were raised that way. Like, that's like right. brush it that's off. Right. That's right. So, so, Rachel, that's why, that's the problem. That is called emotional invalidation. It is the most insidious, pervasive form of emotional abuse on the planet. And it happens everywhere. And basically what happens is small children are denied the ability to learn about their emotions because their parents tell them, don't be emotional, don't cry, don't be right. sad. We don't want to raise a whiny kid. Well, actually... That's, that's the thought, I that's guess. That's the thought. But really what's going on is the parents have unconscious anxiety over their children's emotions, and so they emotionally invalidate their children in order to soothe their own anxiety. But they don't even and, realize it. And they don't even realize it. And here's, a th here's why it's so deadly. Uh, and the research is just rock solid on this. It's deadly because 
at about, we, we, first of all, we're not born with emotions. We're born with something else called affect. And we learn to create emotions, construct emotions as cognitively at about 18 months of age. That's when the process starts. That's when at about 18 months, a little toddler's brain is the emotional centers of the brain are just starting to come online. They're just starting to mature at the same time that the toddler is starting to verbalize. And so what, the, what is supposed to happen in good emotional development, we now realize, is that as children experience different kinds of feelings, different kinds of uh, affective experiences of pleasure and pain, they begin to associate words to describe all the different kinds of experiences they have. And this is called building an emotional database. Uh, people with rich emotional databases are emotionally competent and score high on emotional intelligence tests. People, most people do not have that database built because they've been told all their lives that emotions are bad. It's bad to cry. It's bad to be angry. It's evil to show weakness when you're emotional. You can't be a man and, 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 and show any kind of emotion. And basically what that means is the brain doesn't develop properly. Is that true of all emotions or only only negative all emotions. emotions? All emotions. Because I feel like we tell kids it's all right to be happy. Yeah, and, and so, 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 so here's the thing. There, uh, uh, of the nine basic affects that we're born with, only two are positive. One is neutral and six are negative. If we don't learn how to manage those negative emotions, the positives don't count. There are far, we have far more negative emotions, words for emotion, than we do for positive emotion. And we need to master those. And there's a, there's a study called the ACEs study, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study out of San Diego, Kaiser Permanente. Right. You've heard of it. Okay, well, there's the, there's the evidence. Three ACEs and as a child and three adverse childhood experiences and you are thousands of times more likely to have a bad outcome as an adult. Um, I mean, it's just a monumental study. And one of, the, one of the adverse childhood experiences is emotional abuse of the kind that I'm talking about. And most parents don't even know this. Well, it's because that's the way they were raised. That's so. exactly correct. It, it was the way they were raised. They you know don't... better, you do better. Yeah, that's right. And <laughs> you, you, that's exactly right. You, you hit it on the head. They don't, know, they don't know it because they were never taught because their parents didn't know. So this is a vicious cycle that's been going on for thousands of years. They, um, the new knowledge is slow to get out. Most parents do not, are, do not invest in themselves in learning good parenting skills. They just do it based on what they saw as they were growing up. And, and as a consequence, we have this, as a consequence, people don't learn how to become emotionally confident. If, if they're going to learn it at all, they learn it later in life the hard way by going through broken relationships and saying, I'm tired of this, I'm going to go learn, learn a better way to be. And all that could be avoided. And it's so simple. That's the thing that drives me crazy, is it's so simple to learn how to be emotionally confident. It takes no effort. No effort whatsoever. I'm going to teach you guys how to do it. That's awesome. I'm excited about that. Hope you guys have enjoyed this episode so far with Doug Knoll. We had such a good conversation and there was so much good content that we have decided to divide it into two parts. So make sure that you listen to the second half of this conversation on our next episode. The concepts he talks about relating to our emotions are so fascinating and they make so much sense. Next time he's going to get into more detail about the actual how-tos, what you can do to stop arguments in your own house. So make sure to tune in next time 
Hope you have a great week.